like to turn uh, with me to First Chronicles and chapter 29. First Chronicles 29 and we'll begin at verse 10. This is a prayer, or the beginning of a prayer by David at the, uh, the ceremony to launch the building of the temple. Verse 10 says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Amen. The God we serve is a king. He reigns. In this world there are others who are kings also. People will address them with titles which are appropriate, such as Her Majesty the Queen or His Majesty the King. If we want to give particular honour uh, to a king, we might say that he's the greatest of all kings or King of Kings. In the Bible, that very title is used by Gentile kings of themselves and also used by God to describe Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king. However, it should be clear to everyone here that in its strictest sense, the, the title of king of kings belongs to God Almighty. Jehovah of hosts, Lord of heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. uh, the title for this message is His Majesty, the King of Kings. And you, I'll forgive you for thinking that, well, he's, he's known the coronation's coming, he's going to do a, a, t a topical sermon. That's not what happened. The outline for this, the plan for this was so many weeks ago before I even knew there was a coronation. So it is something of a coincidence. However, um, we've had the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth and we now have Charles on the throne. And I thought I would obviously take advantage of that momentous event uh, to uh, tie that in with my message today. 
King Charles, eh? He has waited. He's waited an awfully long time for this. There's quite a range of opinion in the British church about the monarchy. <clears throat> so, times have changed and there's always the risk that I could offend someone here today. I don't know if you think of yourself as a child of the Cavaliers or the Roundheads. I don't know whether you are a Royalist or a Republican. I don't know. So, to play on the safe side, I'll try to stick to the facts and I should be okay. The monarchy's role has changed down the centuries. That is incontrovertible. The monarchy's role has changed. Now, the, the role of king is not tied in with the name king. Okay? I, I, what I mean is, it's all about the function. It's all about the function itself of the person. That being said, as far as I can see, the closest present day equivalent to the kings of old would be perhaps the prime minister. Now, even though um, modern kings, if you like, mo the modern equivalent of kings, those uh, presidents and those prime ministers around the world, as well as some kings and princes and sheiks and so on, our own monarchy's role has been reduced to, well, little more than figurehead. Uh, also, obviously, a great um, tourist attraction. But the, mo the monarchs still have authority. They have some authority. Now, it doesn't matter if the degree of authority they have is hardly any more than a local councillor. That is irrelevant. The Lord puts monarchs like Charles on the throne in exactly the same way as, as he ordains prime ministers and mayors and peers and even local councillors. Now, uh, some Christians at one end of the spectrum, some Christians I know had all the flags ready and the bunting ordered off Amazon, all ready for the coronation. On the other end of the spectrum, some of them have been sending me messages over the internet questioning whether Charles III could be the Antichrist. And of course, every, every 18 months, you know, someone appears on the television and the, the futurist starts you know, saying, could this be him? Could this be the Antichrist? Well, friends, I've got no more interest in waving flags, as I have, of trying to identify Antichrists and all, all this nonsense. But I know this. Charles III, like all of our monarchs before him, has been ordained by God. And that being the case, you and I have a duty to pray for him. It's no use arguing that you don't serve him because he's this or that. You know, he's an adulterer, he's a papist, he's a this or that. We have to pray for him. You don't need to tell me, friends, what type of strange creature he is. Um, he, he's, he's not only a, not only an adulterer, but he's even more ecumenical uh, than his mother. And as far as I can tell, 
And if I'm wrong, perhaps you can tell me later, as far as I can tell, he does not uphold the uniqueness of Christ as the way of salvation. And that is crucial. God didn't choose Charles because he saw potential in him. God didn't choose him for his godliness. You, you must remember, folks, that the Lord has raised up far more pagan kings in history than he has godly ones. Mm -hmm. Yet, he still instructs his people to serve them and pray for them. Serve them as far as they can according to their conscience. Now, you might say, our king, if you like, is in Tendana Street and he's a Hindu. Charles III, he's a very different type of leader. He gets to keep the appellation of His Majesty the King. We pray for them both. We pray for them all. So even if neither of them is a child of God, we pray that God would instill his wisdom in them so much that we might see righteous decisions made at the highest levels in our society. Now with all that background, I want to speak about the king who is over all, his majesty the Lord. I want to use this prayer of King David to speak about God's sovereignty and his power and remind ourselves, remind ourselves about God's particular reign over the spiritual kingdom of his church. So here's my first point. You may have detected what these three points are from the scripture there. The Lord is head over all, or should I say above all. The Lord is head above all. It says in verse 11, Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Headship denotes authority. The head of a corporation has ultimate authority. And God has the right to govern his creation. If you go back a bit in, in that verse, you'll see that this governance of his creation is given as proof of his greatness and his power, his, um, his glory, his victory, his majesty. All that is in the heavens and the earth are his. It means that he, he created the heavens and the earth. When you look up at a, a night sky on a, on a clear night, perhaps you'll be caused to remember, recall those unimaginable numbers that you've heard from the, the, the scientists to describe the vastness of space. And I'm sure they, they don't know a fraction of the truth. You friends have a real uh, privilege uh, in history. You're the first generation to see video of outer space. You, you, you've seen uh, pictures, high resolution photographs of galaxies uh, that would uh, perhaps take millions of years to travel to. You've seen these wonderful pictures, you've been stunned to hear how many stars are out there. And maybe, maybe it will bring a tear to your eye. 
when you consider the greatness and the power of our majesty on high. Now within the vastness of this known universe, it's the planet that we live on, which is its greatest jewel. Because air, friends, is the focus of God's finest work. We've got this planet which is situated at a very exact distance from this special sun that sustains life. We've got rotation of the earth, we've got revolutions to give regular days and nights and seasons. We've got, we have an atmosphere suitable for biological life. We've got all kinds of living creatures which inspire wonder. And then there's man, the pinnacle of God's creation. This world, friends, was to become the arena in which God's purposes would be played out. Here would God be glorified more than anywhere else. Psalm 89 and verse 11 says... The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The whole creation is the Lord's. His dominion extends from the very core of our planet outwards to the very edge of the universe and, should I say, beyond, if there is such a thing. Now, in verse 11, David confesses the kingdom is God's. Now, the, the, the word has more than one meaning in scripture, but we can understand it, I believe, here to refer to his whole creation. God is the king of the universe, if you like. The majority of people in this world don't serve God, we know. By which I mean, he doesn't know them in terms of a an active relationship. Yet, even though they don't acknowledge uh, God's authority to, to govern them, many will say he doesn't exist. He is their sovereign nonetheless. They are obliged to honour him. The Lord is head above all. Think about that principle in the book of Romans where it says that the creation, the created world itself will be used as evidence, evidence at the judgment of God's enemies, because the heavens and the earth are sufficiently magnificent to provoke adoration to God in the hearts of men, even if they don't know Christ or haven't heard of Christ. It's sufficiently brilliant to provoke admiration during each of their lives these people looked up at the same starry heavens as us their hearts were filled with wonder too but they didn't glorify God they didn't acknowledge his authority they didn't bow down before his majesty they preferred instead to believe the fantasies of a certain group of scientists. People want to be on the side of the scientist friends because they think if they align themselves with the scientists, the scientists, or rather the majority, they, they somehow think they're part of the enlightened intellectual 
elite, and then they can dismiss the Christians and the creationists as cranks and unintelligent. The Lord, who is head above all, will ensure these people will have the same everlasting habitation as the scientists that they worship, and all alike will forever mourn their stupidity and their rebellion. Here's the second point. It says the Lord reigns over all. Verse 12. Both riches and honour come of thee, and thou reignest over all. The Lord reigns. When I read this prayer of David's, um, if you read all of it, he comes across as uh, being in a, in a state of almost ecstasy, an ecstasy of prayer, you might say. Um, I read someone said, it looks as if David has ransacked the dictionary for words to try and praise God. It's quite remarkable, really. He says, you know, greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, exaltation, power, might, all these things. Now, although I've based my message on three elements of his prayer, I'd say don't be too quick to assume that David has sat down and designed the prayer to be, you know, to be logical and structured so that Paul Forrest can use it as a sermon uh, 2,000 years later or whatever. That's not how we should assume. It could be that when David described um, God as head above all and the one who reigns over all, David could have been referring to the same thing. Reigning is a part of being a king, after all. A king who doesn't reign is not really a king, surely. But nevertheless, I wanted to propose a subtle difference between these two aspects of God's kingship, because it's theoretically possible a king could have authority over a realm, yet be idle. He might enjoy an indulgent lifestyle and not take any interest in his kingdom. Now, as I said, a king who did this would not deserve the title of king, sure. But I still want to make this distinction. The Lord is not only the one with authority to govern but he is the one who actually governs as well. He has the right to rule and he exercises that right by actively ruling. The Lord reigns over all, working out his purposes, even in those who don't worship him. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 6 says... O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? He reigns over all, whether they like it or not. 
I'm a British subject and so I'm bound by the law of the land. I couldn't go out and kill someone because I didn't like them uh, without suffering the penalty of the law. It would be no defence in the law for me to say, well, I don't recognise the authority of the state. The judge would tell me that no one cares whether you, you recognise the authority of the state and the court. You're going to jail. Our new king, Charles III, has the title of king, but his authority to rule in any meaningful way is not real. His majesty, the Lord of heaven, however, well, he is not only the head above all nations in a theoretical way, he actively reigns over his creation. I didn't want to get too much into the context of that prayer, uh, but I'd like to highlight just something at the beginning of verse 12, because it gives us a couple of examples of what the reign of God is like, just one aspect of it. It says that riches and honour come from God. Now, as I said, this prayer was made shortly before David died and Solomon took the throne. And a great milestone had been reached and um, in the preparation of um, the building of a new temple for the glory of God. And to his credit, David acknowledges the Lord was the source of the very wealth which was being used to build the temple. He acknowledges the Lord was the one who was showing kindness to David's to David's house, if you like, in giving him the privilege of building this, uh, well, what was what was regarded as the most beautiful uh, of uh, the temples and the tabernacles. So, in other words, it's this: one of the ways God reigns is in the dispensing of provisions, which we then use in His service. The Lord is not only the one who places these desires in us to serve him. He is also the one who provides all that we need to do it. And in that way, his reign over this world brings him honour and glory and not of us. Listen to what the prophet Daniel says about the reign of God over his creation in Daniel 4 and 35. Daniel 4.35 And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Well the rule of the kings of this, uh, the nations of this earth. Their rule is marked by struggles they have to work constantly to maintain order if there's a time for war and a time for peace they are the ones who have to decide which is which and they almost always get it wrong they tax the people to fund public spending and the people resist it and if there's enough resentment against the king well they they can topple him and even have him killed 
God's reign over all is very different. It is an effectual reign. No one can stop him, our verse says. No one can demand what he's asking, what he's doing. He does whatever he wants, all the time, everywhere. God's reign over all is also everlasting. Even that long reign of Queen Elizabeth we've seen, well, it had to come to an end. And she went to the grave with numerous uh, matters unresolved. You know, she had regrets. Not so with the King of Heaven. All matters in this world will be fully resolved by him. All his purposes will come to perfect completion. Here's my third point. The Lord gives strength to all. The Lord gives strength to all. Verse 12 ends with this. In thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. You can see then, friends, that it's because power and might are in the hand of God that he has the ability to grant strength to whoever he wishes. Now at the most fundamental level, God gives strength to all his creatures in that he gives life to them all. Both man and beast are kept alive by the power of God. The scriptures say that if God withdraws his spirit from man or beast, both alike will drop down dead. In a different way, he, 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 um, well, he, he sustains all life. The, the trees and, and the grass of the fields and, and everything else, uh, they're all sustained by his power, his strength of God. However, this isn't the sense of the word in the scriptures here. That's not what strength means here. Now in First Chronicles as a whole, this word strength is used for a, a, a wide range of things um, it's the strength David wishes for his son Solomon. It's the, the strength for, for Solomon to, to keep God's commandments. It's the political support David has as king. Uh, the use of military strength. All these sort of um, varieties of meaning for the word strength. Now, since this prayer is one of thanksgiving to God for the ability to build a temple for him, I think that the strength referred to here is that which is given to all those involved in the building. So, for example, it said God had strengthened David to kickstart the whole project. God had motivated the workers throughout. And he'd encouraged Solomon to complete the work. Well, of particular re relevance to us right now is... How God grants strength to kings. The majesty on high. He's the one who appoints vice-regents to do his will. And as I said earlier, the Lord will quite happily use heathen kings to do his bidding. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. 
says, A king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Regardless of these kings' uh, political, um, political opinions or, or their personal ambitions, they'll end up doing the will of God like chess pieces on a board. Regardless of their attitude to God, he'll manipulate them to serve him anyway. Our new, our new King Charles, I believe, has made history. He's made history like his mother, but it's in a very different way. Whereas she was the she was the longest she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. Charles is the oldest person ever to accede to the throne, and Charles has already reached his three score years and ten, and he's he's gone past that. So his reign might be very short. But God will use him for his own purposes nonetheless. And our earnest prayer for Charles should be that God will strengthen him. Strengthen him in such a way as to glorify the greater majesty in heaven. We should pray God would repent, would grant him repentance of sin as I prayed earlier. For us, God saved the king. That's not just a mere exclamation to bring him honour. For us, God saved the king is a prayer. We want God to save him in the only way which counts. And we want God to use him to promote that righteousness which exalts a nation. I said to you earlier that um, God is, is king in different senses. So far we've spoken about his headship and rule over all his creation. We've also seen how he employs these deputy managers, if you like, in his grand project of the ages. When we use the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, we're no longer describing the whole creation. God's kingdom properly describes a people who God takes a special interest in, his church. He loved them from eternity and will forever love them. He creates them for the purpose of making them vessels of honour to glorify him. He gives them his spirit in a unique way. He works all things in their lives for their good and he gives them the privilege of serving him. Now, he may have a type of care for other men and other creatures. But we need to be careful. He manages the people of this world, but we should be careful with our language. You will... Um, you will note my caution in that you will never hear me speak of God's great love for the people of this world. Now you may disagree. I'm just being cautious. Now God's care, the scriptures say, is over all his creation. 
So that gives you one impression. And we move to the New Testament. The apostle in one place says, God doesn't care for animals. What he means is, he takes care of animals. He takes great care of his animals. But he doesn't have that special love for them. And similarly, my understanding is, God takes care of the non-elect, the reprobate. He takes care of them. He supplies them with what they need. He sometimes supplies them with more than they need. Often a lot more. But the love he has for us, his church, is only for us. In the highest understanding of the words king and kingdom and authority and rule, he's our king only. And let me be even more specific. The Lord God has assigned the responsibility for his operations in this world to the sun. We can properly say God created the heavens and the earth. But it would be even more precise to say that Jesus Christ did it as the, as the, uh, the agent, if you like. And, and we can rightly say that God will judge the nations. But it would be again more accurate to acknowledge all judgment has been committed to the Son. And so, as we get to the end of this, uh, this message, it's, it's very fitting then that we should consider, in particular, Christ as King. Because Jesus Christ is our head. Jesus Christ is our head. In Ephesians 5 and 23 it says, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the one with authority to govern the church. Secondly, Jesus Christ reigns over us. He reigns over us. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Kingdom. You who trusted in Jesus as Lord, and I believe most of you here have at least, most of you have, um, to you. When you became one of his, you became one of his subjects. You became a subject, and so we, we daily witness we experience his reign within our hearts. Jesus is our head and he reigns over us. And thirdly, it's Jesus Christ who strengthens us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 says, And he, God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power, strength, of Christ may rest upon me. His glorious majesty, Jesus Christ, not only secured the salvation of his people through his death and resurrection, but he gave strength to 
overcome our rebellion against him and strength to forever serve him as well. Think on this as well. Think on this. I said that in the context of David's prayer, the strength of Christ was seen in the raising up of rulers. I, I've been talking about kings and prime ministers all this time, but in some marvellous way, Jesus crowns every one of his people. All of you who have Christ as your saviour, you are also monarchs. We are said to presently reign with him. It doesn't feel like, like that, does it? We, we, we don't run the affairs of this world. We don't get to dictate the behaviour of others. The world ignores us. It doesn't appear that we reign in any way at all. But Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns absolutely. And we, his subjects, you who are his subjects, are in a state of union with Christ. And in that way, he shares the glory of his reign with you, if you can believe that. The people in this, the people in this area you are attempting to reach are unsafe friends, are unsafe family members. And any who don't acknowledge Christ as king will come to realise their error in this life or the next. But by the grace of God, we worship Christ as King. Psalm 95, verses 3 to 6 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his. And he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. May the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty be to him who is the King of kings, Lord of lords, the Son of God, and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.